Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, where we discuss digital transformation and emerging technologies in healthcare. Here, some of the most innovative thinkers and leaders in healthcare and technology talk about how they are driving change in their organizations. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to my podcast. This is Patty, and it is my great privilege and honor to introduce my special guest today, Paul Black, CEO of Allscripts. Paul, it's so nice to have you on our show, and thank you for joining us. You are welcome. I'm glad to be able to spend some time with you today. I'm looking forward to this. Thank you. Let's start with this. Over the past decade or so, healthcare has been a very exciting place to be in. We've seen the digitization of patient medical records, and Allscripts and other electronic health record companies have been at the forefront. So I guess what I'd like to start with is uh, for the healthcare industry in terms of technology, and what do you see as the next wave of opportunities for Allscripts? Well, thanks, Patty. I think your, your lead into that is right on target, specifically that there's been so much work that's been done over the last, quite frankly, 25 to 30 years to get the entire platform, certainly in the United States, to become almost completely digital. And that's a pretty exciting place for us to be from a patient safety standpoint, from a, a capability to have efficiencies, and just to you know in, ensure better patient care and better patient access to that care because the, of the uh, ability for systems to deliver the protocols in rural areas is just as this is they're uh, equally able to deliver that protocol in a large academic medical center in a large populated urban area. So those are all, I think, interesting and important constructs that have, have, that have occurred. And, and quite frankly, you know, the, the word that people like to throw around is transformational. And I like that word to describe this environment because truly, in a transformed environment, you are actually going to practice medicine differently for the rest of your life. So from here going forward, we'll never go back to paper. We'll never go back to the way we used to do it. And, you know, the entire platform has been not only digitized, but transformed. So, Paul, you mentioned transformation. Everybody talks about digital transformation. Do you have a definition for it at Allscripts? And what do you see as the big themes playing out uh, in the name of digital transformation today? Well, I would see if there's three or four things that, that we have, in many cases, tried to anticipate the, the where, to where the, uh, the industry currently is so that we can have platforms that are relevant to people that are doing business in this transformed and digitized uh, area. So specifically around interoperability mm-hmm. and population health, and our definition around that really has to do with the ability to take vast amount of data from multiple different electronic medical record organizations and companies to really give a unified and, and community view, a single view of that patient's information. And we've been doing that for quite a while, and we think that that's an important construct that you have to have and a piece of foundational infrastructure that has to be in place because no one is ever going to get to one record. You're always going to talk to the state. You're always going to talk to insurance companies, many different people who have different electronic medical records or other information systems that have clinical information in them that are relevant to that individual person who has a, has a condition that you're trying to, to help them recover from. So that's one. The other one that I think is real important is consumer. And we all have talked and moved from the concept of being a patient to being a consumer. 
patients, you know, unfortunately, are, you know, about the status that you have as a human being, whether you become sick, ill, you know, an accident or some episodic condition that, that you've been battling for many, many years. But the consumer is somebody who proactively looks for and shops and compares and writes and really actually is very, very actively engaged in the, the in a buying process. And specifically then for us in healthcare, the consumer is somebody that we have to really be aware of, how, what their patterns are, what their likes and dislikes are, how they like to be treated, how they like to access the health system, and what kind of requirements they have when, they, when they're on their smartphone or their iPad and they're looking for services that weekend, that night, that evening, that can, that, where they can quickly go in and get a um, certain level of care. Yeah, I think you touched on a couple of things uh, that that I want to dig into just a little bit. Uh, you talked about interoperability. You talked about uh, a consumer experience as far as healthcare is concerned. Uh, let's talk about the interoperability piece first. You know, there's a lot of debate going on right now about access to patient data. Interoperability is kind of unfinished business, if you agree with that. What is your take on the debate that's going on today with regards to providing access, specifically the whole, you know, the HHS proposed ruling around providing access. And uh, where do you think we are today? Is this is this something that you see being resolved in the near term, or do you see that being uh, an ongoing concern? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Sure. The regulations that that uh, are out there and being proposed, and, and I'm seeing that they are going to be and, uh, distributed here very quickly are things that we actually have been very heavily engaged in going back to the 21st Century Cheers Act, going back to being, you know, a very foundational and, and important, I think, pillar inside of the EHR community. Uh, and we have a very important, I think, voice in Washington, D.C. and on multiple different topics. I've had a chance to, to um, testify in two separate congressional hearings on the topic. We met two months ago with HHS Secretary Alex Azar and Joe Grogan, and Joe's the White House Director of Domestic Policy. We had on this specific area and this specific arena, there's a lot of things that we really like about it, and there's just a few things that we've asked for some further clarification around uh, intellectual property protections, market-based pricing models for information exchange, and quite frankly, the appropriate scope of certification requirements. And they've been very good about listening, and they have um, been very considerate of our feedback, and we've had a very constructive dialogue with them on those topics. Yeah. So, which kind of leads into the other the other thing you mentioned, which was around consumer experience, patient experience. There's a lot of interest today in improving the patient experience, you know, digital front doors, patient apps, digital health solutions, an entire startup ecosystem that's coming up that is focused on using data, applying advanced, you know, analytics tools or using design to improve the experiences. All of that really depends on getting access to data in some way, shape, or form. What I heard you say was that there has to be some guardrails around how the access is provided in order to protect patient data. Did I hear you right? You did, and the guardrails are, you know, there's a lot of them that are already in place that we are adherent to. It all, you know, anybody that's in this industry has, has been, you know, extraordinarily cautious about and uh, respectful of the laws that are out there for all the good reasons that they're in place. And specifically on this one, uh, going back to the, the um, 
the regulatory environment. We have never advocated against legislation or regulations that address information um, blocking in healthcare. We strongly support that. And what we've been, if you will, part of this open infrastructure and ecosystem since 2007, which interestingly is the same year that um, the iPhone came out. But we believe that people should have access to their data and that systems should be much more open at an API level, which this legislation also requires more so than just uh, HL7. And the firework has also been very important in that area. But we also believe, importantly, that every patient has a right to control where their health data goes, when it moves or doesn't move, and who sees it. And so we actually grant consent at the patient level with our consumer platforms. We have been advocating for that, and that was a big piece of this legislation that came out that we were extraordinarily supportive of, and we've always been encouraging of that legislation to give the patient full control of their patient medical record. Yeah. So switching tracks a little bit, uh, Paul, the data, the access to the data and all of the governance around it aside, obviously there is a wealth of information and insights that can be gained by applying uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning tools, to drive uh, both improved experiences for patients, but also to drive improved healthcare outcomes. Now, AI is spoken about a lot uh, in terms of its potential to transform healthcare. Would you care to comment on where you're seeing the big use cases for AI, machine learning, advanced analytics in your work, uh, some of your clients? There's been a fair amount of work that's gone on, quite frankly, for a long time. You know, the most recent of that is, is over the course of the last two or three years, has gained a lot of notoriety with things like Watson and, and some of the other big, big name players that are out there that are using artificial intelligence for cancer, using it for radiology, using it for, you know, the substitution of, of humans to be able to look at certain data patterns and to come up with a different answer or a better answer or a more efficient answer. So I think those are a couple of examples of the way that people are looking at it today. I think that there will also be, from an efficiency standpoint, a lot of artificial intelligence utilized for the, the other piece of data that come in when you've automated the shop floor of healthcare. Not only do you get clinical information real-time, but you also get consumption information real-time about how efficient organizations are about moving patients through the system, whether that be you know, ED wait times or components like that all the way through how many you know, resources were consumed in order to do a certain specific surgery and you know what, how much time it took and the, the overall costing of that, I think, is, is going to be a lot of fun to, to track. What we like a lot are the capabilities once the data is stored, structured, and uh, now we have to be able to study it, but also to use the data crawlers and some of these other capabilities that exist out there to give us new insights about populations that we can go then put, you know, specific programs around when you think about it. You're financially responsible for a large community of people. So that's one element at the big data level that, that I would look at. And by big data, I mean you're looking at, you know, multiple hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people at once, and you're looking for specific disease conditions, and you're looking for specific precursors of that disease, uh, warning signals or flares or other metered events, if you will, that if you follow that closely, you might be able to prevent the further deterioration of that patient, whether that be COPD or cancer or some other areas that are out there. So that, I think those are all 
capabilities that exist today that I think are exciting. And those are capabilities that there's a lot of different organizations are getting much, much better at the utilization of. Yeah. Some of my previous guests on this podcast, and I asked this question to everyone about artificial intelligence and where it is uh, today, uh, some of them have suggested that you know artificial intelligence probably has more application today in non-medical use cases than in medical use cases. And you mentioned Watson Health, and they went after cancer as a big use case, and found out that it was very, very challenging. But, you know, there's a lot of other non-medical use cases, revenue cycle management, uh, claims processing, things like that, for which, uh, to your point, replacing human labor with agent uh, automation seems to be working really well. And uh, it's not high risk either from uh, patient harm or potential for patient harm. So would you agree with that, that, you know, we are seeing more benefits from non-medical use cases than in the actual practice of medicine? I probably would not agree with that. I do I, that, that there's more. I would say that there is absolutely there's an equivalent use case for the financial information around HCC coding, around appropriate billing, around you know the financial side of, of healthcare. Anytime you look at large rooms of human beings that are you know staring at screens and or punching away on it on a ten key keypad, I think there's great opportunity for that. But I don't think that that I, I wouldn't. I guess necessarily say that that overreaches what the clinical benefits are and what the clinical usage of those systems are today. But I do think there's a, a substantially large amount of that. Things like blockchain as well are, you know, probably at least currently best suited inside of financial you know, elements inside an in, in insurance company and, and other things inside of, of healthcare that, that make that a great tool for that. But there's also on the clinical side for block, you know, for blockchain. You know, another great example of what more use case there could be would be for medical, you know, MedRec, the reconciliation of all the different medications that people are on. That is, that would be a perfectly well suited application for blockchain, and it's a big, you know, it's a big opportunity. It's also a big problem if you don't properly understand every single medication that, that person is on. And unfortunately, it, in many times, depending upon the number of medications that people are on. They don't really remember every one that they're on either. Therefore, an assist like this, that where you're merging a bunch of different systems, whether it's that the um, consumer side, the hospital dispense, the local pharmacy dispense, the mail order, making sure that all of those medication administration records are all uh, tightly fit together and that they all have a ledger approach that which blockchain leads a very simplistic way to be able to make that happen, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, no, it's interesting you mentioned a blockchain, and of course there are other use cases as well that have been in the uh, in the news. You know, the Synaptic Health Alliance and what they're doing on provider data management uh, using blockchain as the underlying technology. And uh, you know, that's probably a nice segue also to talk about emerging technologies. Right, blockchain is one of them. I see a lot of activity around voice recognition. You want to comment on where we are with voice recognition and uh, specifically maybe what, what you're doing at Allscripts to incorporate uh, voice into your solutions? I think that the voice recognition that's been out there for the last 25, 30 years, especially in the radiology departments, has, has been great. And it, you know, that's probably on a scale of 1 to 10, it's probably in 10 being finished. It's probably somewhere in the 9s. Mm-hmm. So there's you know, the ability for that to replace a keyboard as you know substantially enhance the physician's life. 
I think taking that technology and extrapolating that and using it into a, a very busy primary care clinic and having the caregivers, you know, being able to talk to a device that's in that room and not have not have their hands on the keyboard. Uh, there's a lot of experimentation that's going on with that today. We call that the keyboardless visit, and we have clients that are working on that today at, at scale, and they're getting they're getting a lot of value out of that. And the, the clinicians like that because anything that takes them away from having to hunt and pack on a keyboard, they're all in. Especially when you're trying to see 40 to 60 patients a day, it really can help get that or compress the amount of time that they're, they're spending doing documentation, chart reviews, and anything like things like that in advance are still needed, but that, that's another very important use case. And I, I just think that that will only continue to enhance uh, the experience that, that clinicians have and the usage of that will continue to be accelerated outside of radiology into almost all areas of the practice of medicine. But certainly what the work that's gone on between Microsoft, Apple, and Amazon on this topic will, will highly accelerate, I think, efficient and clever uses of the technology that's been out there, you know, since the 80s and perfected, I would say, 20 years ago for radiologists and it needs to be moved into mainstream clinical care. Yeah. Well, uh, talking about keyboardless, uh, you know, I'm seeing uh, increasing use of keyboardless interfaces for even the, you know, the front end of healthcare delivery, which is uh, the patient experience, you know, through identity and access management, for instance, through facial recognition, for instance. Do you see those kinds of technologies picking up as well from an emerging tech standpoint? Yeah, there's a lot of uh, different ways for people to log in, which is another problem. But you, the, the two-factor authentication is, you know, from a security standpoint, is needed. And will that requirement will be out there, especially for for medications, the narcotics, and other another controlled substances that are out there. And so, ability to navigate and identify a person through a palm, a fingertip, a retinal eye scan, those capabilities that exist today, I think will also just only continue to get better and easier for caregivers to get through, if you will, that very important part of the process of getting logged into a system. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, some of the other big tech, you know, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and so on. And obviously, they are coming into the market in a very big way by leading with cloud as a primary enabler for all of the technologies and for transforming healthcare as we know it. But you also know that healthcare has been relatively slow to migrate to the cloud. And, uh, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on where we are in this whole transition towards the cloud. We're seeing a lot of cloud data sharing agreements and everything being signed. Where do you see us today in terms of cloud adoption in healthcare? And uh, where do you see the big opportunities? Well, we have a, a number of our applications that are native cloud today, and we have other applications that we're moving to the cloud. There's no question that this technology, I think in, in your discussion with me prior, being rapidly embraced by and adopted throughout healthcare. I do think that they're a bit of a late adopter, but that doesn't mean that the acceleration of that adoption can't be substantial as compared to somebody that might have been in the cloud in other industries 10 years ago. So, uh, number one is that it is not only uh, coming, but it's here. And uh, as recently as three years ago, we do business in other countries. And as recently as three years ago, you know, there was national policy at the Minister of Health level 
that stated you could not have you know patient data in a cloud infrastructure today. That's it's encouraged, and so that's you know that's obviously an extraordinarily important move. And uh, for people like us that have native applications, whether it's an EMR or other solutions that are out there, that opens up a lot of opportunity. So from our perspective, the benefit of having something in the cloud are somewhat obvious. The ability to ubiquitously access it from any device, the ability for that to have a different, I think, and more robust layer of security. And when you think about what the investments that those organizations, Amazon, Google, Microsoft make, every year in the digital infrastructures and the cybersecurity surveillance capabilities, they dwarf any investment that a large integrated delivery system could ever make. And I think that will be one of the more compelling reasons why people move to the cloud. The uh, third reason would be the total cost of ownership of not having to do upgrades, not having to buy hardware, not having to have, you know, your own local backup data centers, all of that if you will, goes away. And therefore, these uh, the total cost of ownership for an institution as they look at being able to have a different utility that provides those services to them, while it may not be cost, there may not be the total parity today, there's no question in my mind that over the next decade, that service will be performed and that the competition between those organizations, both like any other technology, will eventually drive that cost down to a place where it's not only affordable, but it can be extraordinarily attractive. Yeah, no, I agree with you on those observations. So let's talk a little bit about the startup ecosystem. There's billions and billions in VC money going into digital health startups, uh, and uh, some of them have done well and are successful, but a great many are also struggling. A question that uh, there is a lot of innovation that is coming out of the digital health startup ecosystem, but many of the health systems that I talk to, they are challenged with harnessing the innovation in a manner that is, uh, you know, risk-contained and at the same time, you know, gives them the opportunity to tap into the innovation. So from your standpoint, Paul, how are you actually harnessing digital health innovation in your own product portfolio? And uh, what is your recommendation for health systems that are struggling to do it in a way that uh, doesn't break the bank? Well, there's uh, three or four things, I guess I would say. Number one is that the the fact when we talk about being the open, connected, that we build open, connected communities of health, the word open is really important. It's not just a buzzword. And our ability to not only have that as a culture inside the company about how we build our solutions and the access that we grant third parties to relatively deep-level APIs, is an important construct that distinguishes us from other people that have been in this industry as well. Part of that open uh, framework also for us creates a incentive for startups to utilize our platform and to partner with us in order for them to build their business case, their business model, and to take their innovation into a welcoming environment where they can prove out test cases, but they can actually then not only prove it out, but also get access to clients that are already connected to a network and potentially get to scale much more quickly. So we encourage that. We fund some of the people that we work with. We see a lot of different companies. We have over 279 different companies that are have written applications that sit on top of our solutions. We have clients that have written their own that sit on top of. But that environment, that ecosystem that we're trying to create 
to support entrepreneurs and support innovation has been something that you know I actually inherited when I first got here. Right. Uh, in 2013, we gave out at our annual users group a million dollars for the top four applications that have been developed and, uh, and that, that sat on top of our ecosystem. So that's something we not, not only, it's not lip service, we actually embrace it and we support it and we have people that are dedicated to helping those folks become successful. Clients, uh, many of them are building a, a capability inside their organization, especially large ones, where they have a JV fund where they're actually looking for and then putting money into third parties, entrepreneurs who are building applications and or who have already declared startup status. And there's a number of large organizations all over the country that have this business line, if you will, of helping fund venture capital-backed organizations that are building and innovating new platforms inside of healthcare. There's a lot of that activity, and I, I, I like that and I encourage that. And again, to the extent that those uh, applications that are funded by JVs and supported by large integrated delivery networks are also part of an all scripts ecosystem. We just think that that's a wonderful, a wonderful way to bring innovation to healthcare in a much accelerated manner. Right. No, that is really interesting. What is your recommendation to health systems that are looking to harness all this uh, innovation? How should they go about accelerating their adoption of innovation? What are some of the best practices that you've seen? What would you recommend for them? Well, I think organizations like University Hospital of Cleveland, like Northwell, like Ascension, all have these funds that are set up. And they act, you know, they brought in somebody from the outside, typically, who has background experience in investing in joint ventures. That combined then with the organizational knowledge of what kind of solutions actually would work and that kind of experience from a clinician standpoint is a pretty powerful combination. I've got people that know what problems I'm trying to deal with today. I've got people that know how to look for, search out, and you know, procure dollars in order to, to fund companies that are building things. And you know, the combination of those two with then the ability to immediately inject that solution into a, a relatively large ecosystem of their own uh, caregivers makes it a very powerful combination. Well, uh, we're coming up to the close here, Paul. Any closing thoughts, anything exciting planned for HEMS that is around the corner? Uh, we, are, we love HEMS. We, uh, we always have a lot of people there. It's a great way to, to see a lot of clients, see other suppliers. We actually do a fair amount of recruiting there. We talk to, to analysts, both people that follow the industry. We talk to a lot of uh, people that write about the industry, folks like yourself, journalists. So it's a very efficient way to spend three or four days. We will highlight some new capabilities that we have when we're down there, which is always kind of fun. Talk about the innovation that all scripts brings to the table. And then also do a fair amount of um, putting exclamation points around some of our clients' experience and some of our clients' success. Right. Well, all the best uh, for Hems, and uh, I hope to see you there. Paul, it's been such a Great. pleasure with you, and uh, thank you so much for being on this podcast. It's been a pleasure on my end as well. Thank you for inviting me, and I'm always eager and excited to talk about what we do, but also this great industry that we're honored to be a part of. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Subscribe to our podcast series at www.thebigunlock.com and write to us at info at thebigunlock.com.